Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me today, as always, is Simon Elliott, the head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. It's been another record-breaking week, Simon. We've had uh, Wall Street reaching yet again another all-time high. And the FTSE, the London FTSE 100 index, also doing pretty well by its own historic standards, at least. So tell us what's been going on in the markets this week. No, you're absolutely right. Another good week for the markets. In fact, the FTSE 100 uh, ended up above 7,000, a level it last reached back in February, I think, last year. But also a good week for the investment company sector. It's, it was up 1.5% last week, and that was brought in line with the rise seen for the FTSE All Shares so of the wider UK market. Uh, we've seen discounts narrow again. So the sector average discount started the week about 2.4%, ended about 1.8%. And that compares with an average so far of this year of about 3.1%. So moving in the right direction. In fact, year to date, it's worth noting that the investment companies are still lagging the wider UK marketplace. So up about 5.7%. And that compares with a rise of 10.2% for the FTSE All Share. And equally, actually, for a change, the UK is ahead of the wider world. So the FTSE All World Index is up 8.6%. So the UK, for the time being, has the bragging rights. But an interesting week, as always, for markets. Volumes have definitely been a little lower of late. Obviously, preceding this week, we had the two four-day weeks, and and certainly trading volumes were were down a little bit in the run into Easter. But clearly, markets encouraged by the robust economic data that we're seeing, particularly out of the US and China, and obviously the progress in terms of vaccine rollouts as well despite talks of uh, mutant variants and all the rest of it. Uh, And not unimportant, clearly, corporate earnings in general, they've been relatively positive compared with expectations. So if we just look a little bit behind those aggregate numbers, what kind of trusts have been doing well? And who's been lagging in the past week? Yeah, so uh, as always, it's a little bit of a uh, mixed bag. But I mean, (laughs) the best performer last week is a company called JZ Capital Partners, up a stunning 57%, uh, though it's worth noting that that particular investment company is on a a particularly wide discount, and I think most people regard it as a bit of a special sit. But in broad terms, it's been a pretty good week for those investment trust companies looking at UK smaller companies. So amongst the best performers, uh, you've got names such as Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income, Uh, They were up 7.4% last week. Invesco Perpetual UK Smaller Companies up 7% and not too far behind them uh, up 6.7% is Odyssean uh, Investment Trust. So a good week for uh, investors in UK small cap. Also a better week for some of the property names as well, actually. Drum Income Plus, which is one of the smaller ones, to be fair, up 14%. But names such as Alternative Income REIT uh, up 9% and GCP Student Living, which is a name I think we talked about a week or two ago, up 10.7%. Well, people have been saying for a while now that the UK looks obviously cheap compared to other markets. And I think that is incontestable if you look at the numbers. But it has been held back by the fact a lot of international investors have shied away from the UK, uh, in part because of Brexit and uh, all that interminable saga, which hopefully is now receding into the past. And of course, there's been the more recently the performance during the pandemic, our record in uh, vaccination has been better than many countries. And that has actually also perhaps encouraged people to come back in to look at the UK. 
I did actually see one rather striking statistic, which is that more money has flown into equity funds in the United States in the last five months than in the whole of the previous 10 years combined. I think that's a bit of a statistical quirk, to be honest, but uh, it does obviously illustrate the fact that there's been a huge amount of money going into the equity markets, uh, particularly in the States, in the last few months, where there's obviously helped by the massive stimulus package that's been announced over there and the fact that cash has been piling up in investors' bank accounts, and they've been putting quite a lot of that to work in the equity markets. Uh, Plus, of course, institutional investors have been encouraged by the pace of the recovery. So their markets have been running hot. I think we can say that. And in the short term, that's good. In the longer term, might be a little bit more problematic, given how high valuations are at the moment. But let's move on and talk about some corporate activity. We're going to go back to a little episode involving boards, shareholders and investment managers. We had a little spat last year with Gabelli Value Plus Plus. But now we're talking about the issue of BH Macro and BH Global, the two Brevin Howard hedge funds, who uh, have recently reached an agreement with the boards of those two trusts to allow their fees to go back up to a 2% level, who have reached an agreement for their fees to be raised against the recent trend in the market. There's been another development this week in that story. What has that been, Simon? Yeah, and it's an interesting one, actually. So earlier this week, we had BH Macro announce that the board had been approached by its largest shareholder, which is Investec Wealth and Investment, one of the leading wealth managers, um, who wished to explore the possibility of a combination with BH Global. Investec apparently had made the same request to the board of BH Global. The board of BH Macro saw the proposal as a positive suggestion, and they welcomed the opportunity to enter into discussions with the BH Global board regarding a possible combination And Investec's idea here is that they want these discussions to take place before the tender offer. So as you just mentioned, that was part of the proposals with regard to increasing the investment fees on these two particular investment companies. Both investment companies said they'd offer a tender up to 40% is my recollection of that. Um, So Investec's idea that there should be a chat uh, about a possible merger ahead of that. And apparently, and this is not unimportant, Brevin Howard Capital Management, the investment manager, is supportive of these discussions and is prepared to help facilitate any agreed combination. So that was an announcement we had earlier in the week. Uh, a day or so later, BH Global replied, and they, they struck a, a bit of a different note, I think it's probably fair to say. They noted the announcement clearly, but they pointed out that they were aware of the potential advantages of a larger single fund, but it also recognised that its largest shareholders had, to date, even voiced continuing support for that sort of vehicle, specifically designed to invest in Brevin Howard multi-strategy fund, or have shown no strong desire for a combination of the two funds. So the board also noted that whereas Brevin Howard now seemed to be broadly supportive of the merger, apparently historically it had been less so. So the board were minded to uh, talk to some of their larger shareholders and see where they were at. But an interesting one, I mean, just to kind of put some numbers around this, if you look at the assets of the two funds uh, at the moment, they probably come in about a billion. Now, obviously, there are these tender offers uh, that are on the table. We haven't got the timing of those yet. Uh, And as I said, I think the idea is that they're up to about 40%. So just for the sake of argument, assuming that they are fully taken up, uh, which might not be the case, but that would see their combined assets uh, shrink to 600 million. So if you were thinking of a merged fund of that with that kind of combined assets, then that's still a pretty decent fund. And that's clearly 
one of Investec Wealth's drivers behind making these proposals. I think, as I said, they're one of the largest wealth managers in the UK. Um, they have been strong supporters of investment trust companies, but equally, they need large funds now to really make it work for them. The, the last thing they want is a whole bunch of small, uh, illiquid ones. So I, one suspects that's one of the key drivers here. Right. So that means more work for both the boards. They're going to have to have their work cut out to get this to a conclusion. There'll be a lot of negotiations to go on, a lot of legalities to look at, but it can be very time-consuming, documents to be drawn up, and so on. I guess we're going to hope that it's going to be wrapped up within the next few months. And what I guess is uh, we'll see what the largest shareholders want to do, whether they want this entity combined or not. But at first sight, I would venture the suggestion that if uh, Brevin Howard themselves are in favour of this and one of the boards is pushing for it, then it almost certainly will go through. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think uh, if you were uh, on the board of BH Global, I think to find a reason not to pursue or investigate this merger, I think might be a little bit tricky. Though clearly they'll have to hear what their shareholder base wish to do. Uh, and again, if you look at the shareholders, it is the largest wealth managers. So we mentioned Investec Wealth, but you've also got names such as Rathbones and Quilters, Tony Smith and Williamson, uh, among some of the leading shareholders. So it'd be very interesting to, to see how this one turns out. There is a little bit of an overlap in terms of the underlying uh, portfolios. BH Global has a wider portfolio effectively by its investment in the multi-strategy master fund, but there is a there is an overlap at the moment. As we said before, I think the performance of the two hedge funds has been broadly similar, but there is still a difference between the numbers that the two have been able to uh, to post. Yeah, that's right. So BH Macro has the better performance record. So over uh, let's have a look over a five-year period, NAV total return up sixty percent, and that compares with forty-four percent for BH Global, um, and they've outperformed over three years, uh, broadly in line over the last year. Uh, one final little point to raise here. How do you think this particular merger will be executed? If they do decide to get together, will it be, in fact, a merger or will it be a takeover by one trust of the other? Uh, what's the me- mechanics of this kind of thing? Uh, if I asked you to put your corporate finance hat on for a moment, Simon. <laughs> it will depend on the particular circumstances and there are a number of factors that you have to uh, take into consideration. But what we've seen across the wider investment trust sector where other mergers have popped up it's that effectively one of the parties is liquidated and there's a rollover into the ongoing vehicle. So I think we're going to come on and talk about the uh, what's happening with in the Invesco stable. And that's exactly that kind of situation. Well, let's do that. Let's move on to that. As you say, there is another merger out there. And this is the proposed one between Invesco Select and Invesco Income Growth, two trusts which are obviously are managed by the same fund management group. There's been a further development here. What's the latest on that particular story? Yes, well, this this has been a kind of rumbling on for some time. I think they initially announced merger proposals um, probably at the start of December last year. So just goes to show these things do take a bit of time to work their way through. But this week, even, we had some uh, general meetings. So shareholders basically approved various resolutions that were required to kind of move this on there's going to be a further vote on the 23rd of April. But effectively, the idea here is that Invesco Income Growth Trust will be liquidated and roll into Invesco Select Trust, the UK equity leg of that particular investment trust. There's also a cash exit uh, on the on the table for shareholders, Invesco Income Growth, uh, and that's up to 30% at a 2.5% discount to NAV. So as I said, it has taken some time to get there, but it does appear now that it will be relatively imminent how have these two trusts been performing and what's been happening 
affected their ratings in the marketplace. Yeah, so Invesco income growth, it's still on a little bit of a discount, actually, probably around about six, six and a half percent at the moment. Uh, and that compares um, actually broadly similar now with Invesco Perpetual Select, the UK leg, probably about a six percent discount, which is slightly odd in the case of the latter because it does have a zero discount policy. So um, I think as these merger uh, proposals have progressed, um, we've seen the discount widen out on the uh, Invesco Perpetual Select uh, UK leg. And that will be interesting that, as I say, they've normally pursued quite a strong uh, buyback policy to ensure that that is maintained, whether it's a case that they've just relaxed it for the time being while these proposals have been worked their way through. Uh, In terms of the, the performance of Invesco income growth, well, if you look over, I mean, these are all relatively short time periods, but um, you know, over the last five years, they're up 27% in NAV total return terms. That's behind the market. That's behind the FTSE All Share, which is up 39%. They've fared a little bit better over the last year or so, so they're broadly in line. And then over a shorter time period, over the last three months, so not too far off year to date, one can say they're up about 2% or so. And that's, again, a little bit behind the market, which is up 5% over the last three months. Okay, so let's move on and talk about another piece of news this week. This is an announcement that may affect a number of trusts in the BMO stable. Uh, Can you tell us what that announcement was? Yes. um, Well, this week we learnt that BMO Global Asset Management uh, had agreed to sell their EMEA business, uh, which is a horrible acronym. It stands for Europe, Middle East and Africa Asset Management Business. To We decided on Amir Prize Financials, I think. But effectively, they're looking to roll uh, that bit of their empire into Columbia Threadneedle. Now, why is that important? Because within BMO's EMEA asset management business is, in fact, their investment trust stable. So that's about 90 billion of assets under management for the whole business, of which about 10% or so is in the hands of uh, investment trusts. And that includes, obviously, F&C investment trust. That's about four and a half billion. So that's uh, the jewel in the crown there. But they've also got a number of uh, other investment trusts as well, including um, some in the property sector as well, BMO Commercial Property, BMO Real Estate and TR Property. So 10 investment trusts in total. What does it mean to shareholders in those investment trusts at the moment? Well, possibly nothing. It's one of those things that when these announcements get made, it's always worth keeping an eye on. Columbia Threadneedle do not have an investment trust stable at the moment. Uh, so there is no uh, clashes, no overlap. And just to be clear, this deal is not due to complete. I think they said they expect it to complete by the end of this year. So it may take some time yet. And thereafter, mergers, acquisitions, they can take a number of years before the dust really settles. But it's just something to to keep an eye on for the time being. Was there any indication given of what the rationale for this deal was? And in particular, does it actually have any implications directly for the investment trust business over here? It's obviously not central to the transaction, but it's an important part of it. Absolutely. I mean, 10% of the of the assets being acquired, a, a very important part. Um, I mean, in terms of BMO's statement, they were clear that they want to concentrate on their wealth management business. And that's essentially, I mean, they're a Canadian company and, and very much North American focused. So that's where they saw their particular future. I mean, there was some commentary around from Columbia Threadneedle that they were particularly interested in BMO's multi-asset business. And again, there's a slight overlap there. Uh, in terms of the investment trust stable with, with some of the things going on with F&C investment trusts. But whenever you acquire a fund management business, there's always uh, people are quite keen to 
ensure that all the assets remain. Uh, walking assets is not a helpful uh, aspect of these kind of acquisitions. So I'm sure everyone will be quite intent on making the, the right noises for a period of time. But you know, investment management is, is to a greater or lesser degree a people person business. And I think they'll be quite keen to ensure that their uh, investment managers remain confident uh, and happy uh, with the way that things are progressing. It raises an interesting question, which is how do fund management groups actually regard investment trusts where they are part of, an, of a broader overall business? They may not be central to what they do, but I think it's fair to say that over the years, I formed the impression that uh, most fund management groups, uh, they like to have investment trusts. They're usually quite profitable and they have a fairly tight and stable ownership base, which is one of the attractions, of course. So they're good businesses to earn. But on the other hand, uh, a lot of the bigger fund management groups, I think, tend to think that it's easier to grow their open-ended business rather than uh, grow the investment trust side of the thing. So they're kind of nice to have, but not uh, necessarily always core to the investment activity of the fund management group. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. I mean, for a long time, I think uh, investment trusts, to be blunt, were seen as cash cows. You know, they sat in the corner, they generated fees, they invariably traded on big discounts, but they were relatively stable. I mean, you know, you had to do something pretty bad as an investment manager to lose an investment trust uh, mandate. I think things have moved on quite a bit. And and obviously, as we've discussed over the last year or so, we've seen any number of changes. And that's an increasing trend across the sector. I think the other big aspect, the other kind of key change that we've seen in recent years is the ability for investment trusts to grow. Um, That probably wasn't the case 10, 15 years ago, but the fact that we've now seen about a third of the investment trusts actually trading on premium ratings or around NAV gives them that opportunity to issue new shares and to grow. And that suddenly makes them more interesting mandates from an investment manager's point of view. I mean, I think the proof's in the pudding. Whenever an investment trust mandate kind of comes up, it's on the table, there's a strategic review, the number of investment managers prepared to kind of throw their hat in the ring is substantial. You know, I think they're they're seen as attractive mandates. And particularly in their ability to, you know, we talked about this before, to kind of provide exposure to less liquid asset classes or to deploy gearing or to deploy slightly more sophisticated strategies. So I think they are seen as attractive vehicles to have within your stable. Well, we certainly believe that here anyway. They're certainly attractive vehicles to talk about and indeed to own. Let's move on and talk about fundraising. We know there's been a lot of fundraising recently, a record first quarter, in fact. Uh, But this week, uh, not quite so much. Let's talk first about a relatively obscure trust. I think it's uh, not unreasonable to say that, called UIL Limited with a ticker UTL. Can you tell us what's been going on there? Yeah, we had some more information about their issue of 2028 ZDP, so zero dividend preference shares. And just to remind people, um, there aren't that many ZDPs now remaining in the investment trust universe, but these are a separate share class issued on a particular date with the view to them being redeemed at a particular price in the future. So as the name would suggest, they don't pay a dividend. But because there is a set price at which they get redeemed in the future, there's an effective return over that period of time. So they're a form of debt in terms of the investment company in question. UIL Limited has at the moment three uh, ZDPs in issue dated between 2022 and 2026. So this will be the fourth that they put on the table. And really what's happening here is that the investment trust is looking to de-risk in some respect their 2022 redemption. So by issuing 2028 ZDP shares now and offering a rollover from for 2022 holders, 
uh, it means that when they come to next year and they have to redeem uh, the balance, there should be less risk to them as, as a business. I mean, UIL is quite a specialist uh, investment trust. The top 10 holdings represent more than 90% uh, of the assets. Uh, and it's very geared as well. I think at the end of February, it was 56% geared. So it is a very specialist vehicle. But this week, we learned that of that uh, rollover option, I think the numbers have come in here about 29% of 2022 ZDPs have agreed to roll over. Uh, that gives them some capacity to issue new ZDP, 2028 ZDPs uh, to people should they be minded. And the gross redemption yield on those new shares are 5.75%. So the idea is uh, you put your money in now and you know that between now and 2028, it equates to an annualized return of 5.75%. So ZDPs at one time were very, very popular, now far less so. Uh, essentially because they, they represent quite an expensive form of debt in this day and age. Indeed, 5.75% is a, a nice return you can get from buying the ZDPs, assuming they run to term. Uh, but you could also, from the investment trust point of view, borrow money much more cheaply than that, I'm sure. So yes, it's an interesting one. As you say, ZDPs, uh, zero dividend preference shares, to give them their full name, are pretty rare these days. To the extent that people understand them, do you think they actually add or detract from the attractions of the remaining shares in investment trust? Yeah, that's a good point. So the idea by having that kind of structural debt in place through ZDP, you're effectively gearing your ordinary shares. What does that mean? Well, in theory, you should get a bit of a pickup in terms of the, the dividend that those ordinary shares can offer. So we talk about them as being geared income plays. And in fact, I think uh, my recollection is it's about a 3% yield in the case of UIL Limited. But because you are geared, in this case, 50 plus percent geared, uh, there can be a greater volatility. And the experience has been that those kind of geared ordinary income shares in general tend to trade on quite wide discounts. So the, the, the usual pattern is that the ZDPs are, are, are quite closely held. They trade around their NAV and the geared income ordinaries on an on significantly wide discount. So um, it depends what you're looking for, really. Yes, Probably before we move on, what exactly does a UILD, what kind of investment trust is it? You said it's quite high risk, uh, but where does it sit in the universe and uh, how has it been doing over the last few years? Uh, gosh, well, to unbundle that, uh, it has a very wide mandate UIL. Um, it's run by a chap called Charles Gillings. He's also involved in Utilico Emerging Markets, which I think is an investment trust we've talked about before. I mean, the mandate is quite wide, uh, effectively looking to invest in undervalued investments. Uh, and as I say, they have a very concentrated portfolio. Uh, the top 10 at the end of February, in fact, were 97% of uh, the group assets and, and very focused on a number of sectors being technology resources and in particular financial services. Uh, quite a large weighting to Australia as well, 39% of assets in Australia. In terms of the uh, long-term performance, well, it depends obviously what you're looking at. Um, the ZDPs are all covered, which is uh, obviously positive in terms of the ordinary share class. This is dated to the end of February. Uh, and in that regard, uh, over the last three years, the share price is up 81% and the net asset value is up 43%. Uh, and that compares with um, the FTSE all share to that end of February date of 3.8%. Yes, I think that's uh, probably quite enough about ZDPs for this particular week. It is a specialist area. But 5.2% does look like a decent yield, at least if you're looking to do some planning ahead on the ZDPs. Okay, so let's talk about a US Solar Fund. They want to do some fundraising. What are they uh, proposing to do? 
Yeah, that's right. So they announced a placing program this week. And to be fair, they had their results out, their annual results for 2020 about a week or two earlier. And they kind of made it clear they would look, be looking to come back to the marketplace. Uh, they've now uh, provided a few more details of that. Effectively, they've got two transactions that they wish to fund, and that's an investment of $83 million for the refinancing of the Heelstone portfolio and $22 million, this is all US dollars, for the acquisition of a, a further 25% interest in Mount Signal 2. Uh, the issue price will be at $1, which strangely enough is the, the price that they came to the market with about two years ago, April 2019, uh, but it represents a discount of about 4% to the closing share price just ahead of the announcement. And in fact, their NAV at the moment is about 96 cents. So this is US dollar stock. So it would be at a premium to that as well. But yeah, an interesting development. I mean, this came to the market April 2019. It raised uh, 200 million US dollars. And obviously, it's taken a little bit of time to get fully invested. So I mean, I'm sure the, the investment team here would be looking to kind of push this one on a little bit. It's probably been a little bit off the radar for some people. Uh, and certainly it has a lower liquidity in terms of the secondary market than some of its peers. We've talked a little bit about Renewable Energy Trust and their fundraising activities over the last few weeks. There's been quite a lot of issuance, uh, but also a slight change in the market attitudes towards them. Do you have any uh, thoughts about uh, how that trend might develop? Well, as I said, it's, it's been trading on a, on a premium rating. Uh, it certainly has in recent times up to uh, you know 8% premium. Uh, and over the last 12 months, it's, it's averaged a 2% premium. But those ratings are probably a little bit weaker than, than some of its peers. In terms of its dividend as well, it has now started to pay a, a dividend on a quarterly basis. So its yield on a historic basis is just short of 2%, 1.9%. So you know how much they raise uh, remains to be seen. But I think really to kind of move this company on, they, they do need to grow it uh, and to widen the shareholder base, increase the liquidity, in the secondary market and, and put it on the map. I mean, I think we talked in recent weeks about the difficulty of getting that initial IPO away and then building on that, having established an investment record. And I think that's where this particular investment company is. So it's obviously got the premium rating and it'd be looking to use that to really uh, build out its assets and improve its investment program. Okay, so let's move on and talk about uh, some results. Uh, we're going to start off in the UK. Obviously, we said the UK market has done very well this year, but these results will be uh, mostly uh, looking back to last year. Let's uh, start off with Merchants Trust, MRCH, Merchants, uh, been around for quite a few years. Uh, what's the uh, results there, Simon? Yep, so they had annual results out for the 12 months to the end of January this year. And in that time, they had an NAV total return uh, down just over 12%. And that compared with a decline of 7.5% for the, the benchmark. So that'll be the FTSE All Share. And in fact, the board have attributed that underperformance, or at least half of that underperformance, to the gearing on the fund. And the gearing actually stood at 17% at the end of January. So this investment trust, it is one of the AIC dividend heroes. Uh, and in terms of that record, it actually increased its dividend again. So it was up from 27 spot 1p to 27 spot 2p. And that represents, I think, the 39th year of consecutive uh, annual dividend increase. And that was despite the fact that it saw its earnings fall about a third or so in the year. So they were happy to use revenue reserves and they still have substantial revenue reserves in the background there 
should they need them going forward. They've also been raising new uh, shares as well, actually, over 8 million shares issued in the period, raising £32 million. So Simon Gurgle, the manager of this one, very experienced manager, has been responsible for this investment trust for 15 years. So clearly a tough period. The UK market was not one you wanted to have a, a relatively high level of gearing in last year, and obviously that hit the numbers hard. But if you look at the portfolio, it is um, it's quite a blue chip mainstream uh, portfolio. So oil companies, tobacco companies, uh, and very much an emphasis on uh, the dividend generation and quality dividend growth. So it sits in the UK equity income sector. And um, well, it's interesting. I was looking at its uh, performance and rating. I mean, it's, uh, as you say, it's been issuing some shares and it's got a uh, somewhat higher yield than most of the peer group. Is, uh, is that right? That's spot on. Yeah. So on a historic basis, that yield equates to about 5.2% on the back of its current share price. And that compares with an average for its peer group of about 3.8%. So um, it's certainly one of the higher yielders in its peer group. And, you know, the reason for that is the way the portfolio is structured, but also that gearing as well. The gearing is very helpful in allowing it to achieve that kind of yield level. So it was a disappointing year, but on the whole, it's still being well regarded in the marketplace. Let's uh, talk about uh, Schroeder British Opportunities, SBO. Uh, Schroeder British Opportunities, who I recall this one only came to the market uh, last year and only just uh, clawed its way to the market, I think. What have they had to say? Yeah, that's right. So it's only been going about four and a half months or so. They provided a portfolio update, so it's effectively for Q1 2021, which obviously represents most of the time that it's been in existence. Um, the NEV is up about 4% since its IPO on the 1st of December last year. Uh, a number of strong contributors in that time, including Volution Group and Body Coat, while Blue Prism detracted. They've deployed 80% of their IPO proceeds and they raised £75 million at launch. And the portfolio comprises 30 public and private companies at the end of March. So that includes three private companies. And the idea, obviously, with time is they're going to increase the number of private company investments. In fact, following that Q1 update, they did announce that they'd invested into a company called Sarah or Kera, I'm not sure if it's a hard C or soft C, Kera Care Limited, uh, as part of a funding round to support that particular company's growth plans. But the idea is very much that within the first six months of launch, there will be about 25% of IPO proceeds invested into private companies. And the public companies obviously representing the, the bulk and uh, particularly a bit of a focus on consumer discretionary exposure. But a very interesting mandate, clearly a hybrid a fund between public and private. Tim Creed and Rory Bateman at Schroeder is responsible for this one. Still still very early days, uh, but it sits within the, the private equity growth capital subsector, uh, although obviously there is quite a high public market element to it at the moment. So uh, I think it's still trading at a discount. Obviously, there's been a bit of cash drag that they haven't actually managed to get fully invested yet. And we know that it's uh, well, this interesting little sector with the public-private. Um, there is obviously Schroeder UK public-private, uh, the old Woodford patient capital, in the same sector. So what do you think the uh, the rationale of having two trusts operating in this particular area might be? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And one, obviously, that came up when Schroeder's launched British Opportunities towards the end of last year. But they see the vehicles, the two vehicles, as, as quite different. I mean, for a start... The Shredder UK public-private, as we've discussed in weeks gone by, is a portfolio they inherited, um, and they're obviously still working through the process of moving that portfolio on. I think it will change in time. But I think with Shredder British Opportunities, effectively, the types of company that will be in that portfolio and, and even are at the moment will be kind of higher up the market cap scale. 
So these are more kind of proven businesses. They talk about high quality growth companies. Obviously, there'll be quite a high uh, listed element as well, probably higher than you're likely to see with Schroeder UK public private in the near term. So I think Schroeder's are pretty confident that they are two distinct portfolios. They're obviously both will evolve over time. Okay, so that's one to watch. I mean, it's still quite small, isn't it? I mean, it uh, it only raised, uh, I can't remember exactly how much it raised, but it was less than 100 million anyway, maybe 75 million or something like that. I can't remember exactly. So they've got a bit of ground to go if they want to build that into something uh, a little more substantial. Let's talk about some overseas trust now. What about Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus, AAS? Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus, they've had some results. We talked about some other Aberdeen Standard Asian trusts uh, last week. But what about this one? Yep, so they had their interim results out to the end of January. Not a bad set of results. The NAV was up uh, just over 21%, and that represented a, a little bit of an outperformance of the benchmark. The MSCI company's Asia Pacific X Japan small cap index, and it's worth noting, as the name would suggest, maybe that this is looking at smaller Asian companies. In share price terms, they did even a little bit better. So they're up 22.1%. And that's a reflection of the fact that discount narrowed uh, in the period. And that was probably helped by the fact they bought back some uh, a few shares as well. In terms of the NAV performance, that was boosted by holdings in uh, the technology and the communication services sector. Though they did note that actually uh, a lack of exposure to some green energy companies in China Uh, acted as a bit of a a detraction from relative performance. And in fact, that whole kind of green business opportunities is something that the the manager is looking at. So gearing at the period end, so at the end of January, equated to about 11% of net assets. Okay, so we'll move on. Still talking about uh, Asia. We're going to talk about Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies Trust, SST, Scottish Oriental Smaller. Uh, they've also had interim results, but I think to the period end of February rather than end of January. What? Uh, how have they done? Yep, so you're absolutely right. The six months to the end of February, the NAV total return was up 14.1% in that time. And that compared with 18% for the MSCI, all countries, Asia X Japan index, uh, and 22.5% for the small cap version of that particular index. Share price total return was a little bit better, up 15.4%. And in fact, if you look at what was driving or holding back NAV performance, uh, the allocation to India was the largest contributor to returns, while China, Malaysia and Vietnam were also positive. But allocations to South Korea, Hong Kong and the Philippines acted as a a detractor, but they maintained their dividend at 11.5p, certainly for the financial year of 2020. So a very interesting portfolio, this one. Again, it is Asian smaller companies. Though uh, certainly at the moment, it has quite a tilt to India. About a third of the portfolio uh, is invested in Indian small caps. And at a time where perhaps China has been leading the charge, that probably hasn't particularly helped this investment trust performance. But an experienced investment management team, and, and they'll be hoping, no doubt, that things will pick up, particularly in the second half of their financial year. Well, I guess that both these trusts, Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus and Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies, are both in the same sector so we could sort of compare their performance i think uh, not unreasonably and uh, well ask my favorite question who's got the bragging rights here <laughs> well um perhaps given my little bit of commentary it won't come as a surprise to learn that aberdeen standard asia focus certainly over five three and in fact one year uh, is ahead so over five years the nav total return is up 64 percent that compares with 34 percent for scottish oriental smaller companies 
Uh, though both are actually behind the other fund in that particular subsector, which is the Fidelity Asian Values Fund. That's up 73% over that five-year period. So I would suggest there's a little bit of a, a style issue here, as discussed. Scottish Oriental smaller companies. I remember you know, its previous investment manager describing the investment process, and it won't have changed too much, as growth at a Scottish price. <laughs> and this idea being that they certainly would not look to overpay for growth. <laughs> I like that. Very good. Uh, let's talk about uh, Middlefield Canadian Income, other side of the Pacific now. MCT is the ticker. Middlefield Canadian Income, and it invests, unsurprisingly, mainly in Canada. And they've had some annual results, and uh, let's hear how that went. Yep, annual results at the end of December last year, in which time they generated an NAV total return, it was actually down 7.2%, and that compared with a fall of 8.5% for its benchmark. Did a little bit better in share price terms, that was down just 2.6%, as the discount narrowed from about 14.5% to 10.5%. They maintained their dividend at 5.1p, despite the fact that that was uncovered, so earnings per share were actually 3.61p in the period. And at the end of December, the end of last year, their gearing stood at uh, 15%. So they have, or certainly during the period, they initially reduced that gearing level. And in fact, they were sitting with 10% net cash uh, in March last year, uh, and then obviously redeployed that cash and, and went into a geared position. But as you say, largely, as the name would suggest, uh, invested in Canada, 85% of investments allocated to Canada, uh, quite a large weighting to real estate, 30% financials, not too far behind it, 29% and utilities, 16%. So quite a focus, one would assume, given that kind of sector bias on dividends and yield. Well, we can also compare that to uh, another trust which has reported annual results, and that is the North American Income Trust, NAIT, North American Income. What were their results like to? They had annual results out to the end of January. In that time, their NAV total return was down 5.7%. And that compared with the Russell 1000 value index, uh, which is down just slightly at 0.1%. And the reasons for underperformance, well, they were underweight communication services, uh, which didn't really work in their favour. And also uh, stock selection in utilities and consumer staples was not positive. What was positive in that year was being underweight utilities uh, and also stock selection in technology. In share price terms, they actually fared a lot worse. They were down 16.5% as the shares move from a premium rating, a 0.4% premium, to nearly an 11% discount in the year. Uh, so they did buy and they have bought back some shares since the year end. Income, obviously a key part of this particular story, uh, and the annual dividend was actually increased over 5%, 10p per share, and that was covered by the revenue return. That was up 3.2% to 11.79p. So a dividend that's been increased and was covered in the year. Uh, and despite that, there's been an amendment to the management fees with the tiers reduced down, so slightly less fees for the manager. But uh, an interesting portfolio, quite concentrated, only 39 equity holdings. Uh, they do hold a few corporate bonds as well. And of that 40 or so holdings in the portfolio, only two saw dividend cuts uh, in the year. So their focus on quality companies paying dividends uh, seemed to come through. They also generate quite a bit of income, 25% in this year from option writing as well. Okay, so these two trusts are also in the same sector, North America, but they are income trusts, as you say. So again, we could uh, compare their performance over time, obviously different regions in which they invest. But how do they two stack up? 
Yeah, it's probably worth noting the, the, the respective yields uh, to start with. So Middlefield has a yield of 5% on a historic basis, North American income 3.7%, and the other investment trust in this subsector, which is the BlackRock Fund, that's at 4%. And in fact, that's the only one trading on a, on a, a bit of a premium at the moment. That's a 3% premium. And I think, as you may remember, they announced a strategic review not that long ago, which is still ongoing. Middlefield's on a 12% discount, North American income probably on about a 7 8% discount at the moment. In performance terms, uh, the most successful, certainly over the last five years in NAV total return terms, is the BlackRock Fund. That's up 83%, followed by North American income, up 71 and Middlefield uh, bringing up the rear, up 60% over that five-year period. Okay, so move on. Let's talk about uh, another well, well-known investment trust. This is Caledonia Investment, CLDN, Caledonia Originally started as a effectively a kind of family office for the Kaiser family, but now obviously moves a long way from that. Uh, what have they had to say this week? Yes, well, they announced an NAV update, actually. So not the full results, uh, but they provided an NAV update. Why is that important? Well, because that included the biannual revaluation of their private capital portfolio, which is a, a substantial part, about a third or so of their assets, actually 37% to be more precise. And in that 12-month period to the end of March, their NAV was up 24%. So the quoted equity sub-portfolio, that was up 30%. The private equity portfolio, that was up 22%. uh, And that included the uh, write-off of Buzz Bingo, which I think we may have talked about in weeks gone by. And the final element of the portfolio is the funds portfolio, and that was up 31%. So the private equity portfolio certainly lagged in that 12-month period. And essentially, that was a result of what happened, unfortunately, to Buzz Bingo and their holding there. Uh, but the majority of their private holdings are performing well, and that includes a company called Deep Sea Electronics, which was written up uh, during that year. And in fact, quite lowly geared at the end of March, the gearing was was less than a million pounds, which in the context of Caledonia's balance sheet is uh, relatively immaterial. And they had uh, quite a bit of liquidity. So we await the final results, which I think will be out next month, if memory serves me right, and to see get a little bit more detail on how the different aspects of the portfolio are performing. Yes, well, I'm sorry to hear that uh, Buzz Bingo didn't buzz very well. But uh, Caledonia is a big investment trust. It's uh, it's over two billion, I think, isn't it? Something like that, and uh, still trades on a big discount. And uh, that's always the question we keep coming back to with these big uh, trusts of this sort uh, with private equity exposure. Do you think that's going to change every time? I mean, how does how does a discount behave over time? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And you're right; it is a large uh, investment company. I mean, assets of two point two billion, a market cap of one point six billion. So this is pretty substantial, and yet. The discount too is is pretty substantial, unfortunately, at 26%. That compares with an average over the previous 12 months of 22%. And it's probably fair to say over the longer term that the the, the range of Caledonia's discount, uh, I mean, certainly between high teens and and 20-25%. So this is at the wider end. And it will be interesting, actually, they have um, bought back shares historically, they are limited because of the, the, the Kaiser family stake in the company. So they're limited in terms of how much they can do with regards to buybacks. Although essentially, I think they will be in a, a closed period at the moment. So they will be limited what they can do, uh, I suspect. And it might be the case that as and when we get the full results, they might be a bit, a little bit more proactive. We shall see. But yes, it will be a frustration for shareholders in this particular investment trust, that discount. But you know, it goes about its business. So if you look at the five-year uh, NAV total return numbers, they're up 54%. Uh, 
and that compares with a rise for the FTSE All share over that same period of 39%. So uh, over the long term, it's certainly added value. Okay, and we're now we want to talk about something which is about as different as you could imagine, and that is a Golden Prospect Precious Metals, GPM, Golden Prospect. They've uh, put out their annual report. Uh, obviously, it's always a very exciting ride if you're looking at precious metals. They can be very volatile. So how did they do? They did well. Yeah, 2020 was a good year for Golden Prospect Precious Metals. In share price terms, I think they were up about 70%. And in NAV terms, they're probably up about 62%. And both of those numbers represent an outperformance of the VanEck Junior Gold Miners uh, Index or the New York Stock Exchange Gold Bugs Index and Physical Gold. So uh, they did well on all fronts. West African Resources, which is uh, the fund's largest holding, was a, a key contributor, whereas uh, a company called Fortuna Silver uh, was a key detractor. So, yeah, a good year for gold. But this is um, clearly a very specialist uh, investment trust company uh, and a relatively small one as well. So the market cap's about £46 million or so at the moment. uh, And that's even after that great performance last year. So uh, it's probably one that uh, is off a lot of people's radars. Well, I mentioned the volatility. And if you look at the kind of five and 10 year numbers, that does rather bring it out, I think, does it not? I mean, the the 10 year numbers, obviously, we had that great uh, gold price boom uh, back in the early part of the last decade, the 2010s, and it would have done quite well for a period, and then it would have sold off a lot. So um, I mean, if we look at the 10-year figures, how, does that, uh, how do they look, and how do that compare to the rest of this specialist sector? I haven't got the 10-year figures, to be honest, in front of me. I can tell you what they did over five years, uh, and they were up 63% in LAV total return numbers over five years. I mean, the sectors, I mean, probably the, the best-known uh, investment trust company in the sector is BlackRock Wild Mining. And over that five-year period, that particular investment trust is up 193%. The worst performer is Riverstone Energy, sadly down 60% uh, over that time. So a very different experience for those particular uh, funds in that subsector. Yeah, I think for once I have the advantage of you here, Simon, and I think I can tell you that actually it's uh, lower over a 10-year period than it was uh... 10 years ago. The price is lower than it was 10 years ago. I think I'm right about that. That's what the AIC says anyway in their statistics. Let's hope they're right. Let's move on and talk about some property trusts. We talked about BMO and one of the investment trusts that uh, will be being taken over is uh, the BMO Commercial Property Trust, BCPT, a well-known general property trust. They've had some annual results and uh, of course last year was not perhaps uh, one of the years they'll be looking back uh, with much fondness on. No, that's spot on. So if you look at the annual results to the end of December last year, the NAV uh, per share was down about 10%. NAV total return of 8.1% down. So obviously the dividend helped cushion that a little bit. But in share price total return terms, they were down 28% in 2020 as the discount widened from 12% to 32%. And even that represented a bit of a recovery. So if you actually look behind that, you look at actually what's going on at portfolio level, and, and obviously, this is, a, as all these commercial property funds are, there, there's an element of gearing involved. So you kind of strip that out. The NAV total return was down just 4.8%, which isn't uh, too bad. The MSCI index was down 2% in comparison. And that underperformance at a portfolio level was driven by the higher allocation to retail and offices and also being underweight logistics. And we talked before about logistics and how popular they have proven in the last year or so. Um, at the end of the year... They had a loan to value of about 23%. And actually, interestingly, they they gave some disclosure around their rent collection as well. 
the rent collection was actually uh, 91% in 2020 and actually if you kind of pick that up from the covid effective period from march onwards that came in at 88 percent so so far this year or for the first quarter of 2021 that number is about 85 percent as well so it's still a little bit of work to be done in terms of rent collection and again one suspects that that allocation to retail is probably the key element there in terms of the dividends well actually they suspended their dividend for a period of time last year so their dividend with respect to 2020 came in at 2.85p and that compares with 6p per share in 2019 so obviously a substantial decrease in dividend levels but looking forward uh, which is obviously hugely important they expect a higher level of transactions uh, and they've made it clear that any proceeds from sales will be potentially used for share buybacks as well. So the fact of the matter is that this is trading one of the wider discounts for about 33, 34% discount at the moment. And they're happy to sell a proportion of the portfolio and use that to buy back their shares. Yes, indeed. And uh, let's run through a couple of other property investment trusts that have reported all very different in their focus. Uh, Schroeder European Real Estate. Let's go to them next. S-E-R-E. Schroeder European. Tell us about uh, what they've had to say. Yep, so this was a, an update for the first quarter of this year. And again, a lot of focus on where they are in terms of rent collection. Uh, they're at 93% of the rent due for this first quarter has been collected. Uh, and that was ahead of the amount collected in the previous two quarters, which equates to about 89%. In terms of valuations, they were down just a little bit, 0.6% uh, as at the end of March compared with at the end of December last year. They gave some information in terms of what's going on in terms of some of their key properties, uh, in terms of some refurbishments and a few valuation increases. But uh, it's clear that in general, they're quite busy. There's an issue over one particular property in Seville, a property investment there, which one suspects might be a, a tricky one for them. And they've made it clear that actually they suspect that as and when this is revalued, it's likely to show that their loan to covenant commitment has been breached. Um, but there's no recourse on that particular uh, loan and investment. So we'll see how that one plays out for them. Well, that's certainly uh, one to watch. Let's move on and talk about uh, PRS REIT, PRSR, which is uh, in the business of building uh, properties for rent in the UK. Uh, what have they had to say? Yeah, this was again was an, an update uh, for the quarter to the end of March, which effectively is their third quarter of their financial year to the end of June 2021. And again, they're making really good progress in terms of bringing new rental homes online. And just to remind people, this is a new build rental family homes. It's quite a specialist play within the property market. And they brought on 427 new rental homes in the quarter, which takes them to over 1,500 for the first three quarters of their financial year. So at the end of March, the portfolio stood at just short of 3,600 completed homes. And basically the target they're looking to get to is 5,200 homes. So they're slowly but surely uh, getting there. And it's worth noting as well that this is one of the few kind of UK property focus funds that uh, has traded on a, on a premium. They're on a probably a little bit of a discount at the moment, but very, very small 0.3% discount. So it's one whose rating has held up uh, despite the, the, the problems seen in the property market. OK, and then finally, we'll have some good news for investors in the final trust we're going to talk about. Uh, good news for the investors, maybe not so good for some of those who uh, rent their properties. But let's talk about the news about Phoenix Spray Deutschland, PSDL. We talked about them a couple of weeks ago when they had their annual results out. 
and we said that a verdict was due quite soon on the legality of the rent controls that were introduced in Berlin uh, a little while back, uh, which had a, a negative impact on this particular trust. So what is what has the news been this week? Well, it's good news because the German federal court have ruled against the legality of the Mittendeckel, almost certainly pronounced incorrectly, but it's the Berlin rent controls. So this was the expectation of the investment team at Phoenix Spray Deutschland. So that's good for them. The impact on their numbers uh, for 2020 had previously been estimated to be about 4% of gross rental income. And if that had been maintained through 2021, that would have been an impact of about 20%. So quite a substantial hit to their gross rental income. But all their contracts had been written in such a way that if this ruling, uh, as they expected, came to pass, then they would allow them to kind of uh, get the back payment for higher rents. So good news for this particular investment company. They're going to claim 1.8 million euros back from their tenants. And uh, we've seen that reflected in the share price of this particular one. So it's probably up about 10% or so since this announcement has gone from £3.31p to £3.64p. So uh, taken well by the markets. And indeed, it was. Uh, it had moved out to quite a big discount, I think. And that must have come in as well over that period. Is, would that be right? Yeah, it's still on you know, reasonable discount. I've got it on about a 20, 21% discount uh, at the moment. But just to put that in perspective, over the previous 12 months, it's averaged a 31, 32% discount. So we've certainly seen that discount narrow over that time. So, I mean, this particular trust is in the same sector as Schroeder European Real Estate, I think, SERE as well. And uh, we could do a little comparison there. I think obviously they do very different things. But uh, how are those two done if you were having to choose between the two of them, which one would have served you better? Yeah, there's quite a big difference in terms of NAV and share price uh, returns here. So if we look over a five-year period, Phoenix Spreu Deutschland is up 205% in NAV total return terms over five years, but actually up 128% in share price terms. And that really reflects that, that discount move. Schroeder European Real Estate, again, big difference between the NAV return and the share price return over that five-year period. Schroeder is up about 70%, but in share price terms, up 20%. So again, uh, it makes a big difference. And they're trading on a a discount of about 25% or so at the moment. Though I guess the Schroeder Trust has got a significant yield and uh, the Berlin one uh, does not have anything like the same amount of of dividend income. Yeah, that's spot on. So the the Schroeder European real estate on a historic basis is yielding 4.8%. Uh, whereas Phoenix Roy Deutschland is on about 1.9%. So, yeah, big difference in terms of yield. Okay, so that's it for this week. Thank you very much, Simon, for your, your insights as always. And we will look forward to talking again next week and when we will find out whether these markets that are running hot uh, continue to run hot or not. And uh, that will be something which uh, we need to keep an eye on. So thank you, Simon. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates, and market commentary. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.